what Jacob read uh, lastly there out of Ezekiel 18, if you consider the wrongs or sins of your fathers and choose not to do likewise, but repent, then none of your sins will be remembered and you will not die for the sins of your fathers. So past has zero relevance in your present if you repent and turn to Christ. That's what Ezekiel 18 is trying to say. So then it's really not about what your fathers did because you have a choice to turn from those habits or not. What matters is what Adam did because ultimately that is what has resulted in the DNA, so to speak, that we inherit. So what exactly did we inherit from Adam? That's the first and biggest question. So let's go to Romans 5 to address that first. Romans chapter 5. And we will start in verse 12. Before we start reading in verse 12, also keep in the back of your, of your mind Genesis, where God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Okay, so keep that in mind. Romans 5.12, starting there, says, just as through one man, who's the one man? Adam. Just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. Two things. What are the two things we got from Adam? Sin and death. And it says death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because what? All sinned. So death doesn't spread to all men just because of what Adam did started with what Adam did, but death spreads to you because you have sinned also. The fact that you sin proves that you inherited sin from Adam, and because of sin, we inherit death as well. In its most basic sense, it means physically you are going to die. This body will decay, the one that you have now. Keep reading. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now, let's just take a pause in verse 15 there for a moment. Adam's offense Many died. Now, a lot of people have had a problem with this idea that when we're born, we don't choose to be born with a sinful nature. We inherit that without exercising any kind of free will. So a lot of people, like I've had a conversation, a few conversations with people, but one uh, young man in particular that I'm talking to right now, actually, who has a really big problem with the Bible because he doesn't think it's fair that we're all born with a sinful nature. We didn't get to choose whether or not to have it. So why is that fair? But this is why it's important. And this is why it's actually necessary that things happened the way that they did starting in Genesis. And just keep this in mind, because this is a really, really good answer. And it's biblical for those that have this exact problem. The very fact that God set up creation as such that from one person's action, we are either made righteous or unrighteous, makes it possible for us to be made righteous the most easily. 
In other words, just like you became a sinner because of what one person did thousands of years ago, you also are made righteous because of what one person did thousands of years ago without you having to do anything at all. If it was set up that you became a sinner or inherited death because of your own choices, then that would mean the only way you would be able to be made righteous is through your own choices, which we know biblically is impossible, right? So Jesus would not have been able to make you righteous unless Adam had made you a sinner. Does that make sense? Right, right. That also. I'll boil it down just a single phrase. This essentially means that the fact that you were born a sinner allows you to be born again and be made righteous because of what someone else did for you. And that's what Jesus did. So if you or someone else you know has a problem with the fact that it seems not fair that you were born a sinner, you have to tell them, if it didn't happen that way, you would not be able to be made righteous. You wouldn't be able to be forgiven. It's because of what someone else did for you in regards to both death and life that allows you to be saved. So it's an essential, essential point. In a men's, breakfast, or a men's uh, Bible study when I lived in Hinckley, the pastor shared how um, if you look at Genesis, going through Genesis, it's, you know, in the early days of Genesis, those men and women probably lived incredibly long times. But it just their, their lives got shorter and shorter and shorter, probably for one reason, mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. Sin, yep, yep, absolutely. It abounded. Yes, it did, yep. So that's why it says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Who is the one to come? Jesus. Exactly. So Adam was a type of Christ, which is that just as, this is what I was trying to say, just as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so as by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So you actually have Adam to thank for what Jesus did for you. And it doesn't really seem that way because you're like, Adam made me a sinner. That's not a very good thing. But it had to happen that way in order for you to be made righteous regarding what Christ did for you. Make sense? It's a really important thing to make sure that you have clear. Okay. But I'd also add that yeah. because there's only one way, if God had given us five different ways, three different ways, sure. then other people would say, oh, well, there's more than one way to be saved. I'll take my own way. Sure. Which they do now. Yep. Yep. They do. They think it's another way. But there is only one. Yeah. Verse 16. The gift, and the gift is what? Yes. So ultimately salvation, you could say. It's the grace of God, righteousness, salvation, all of the above. Is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. So the beginning of Romans 5 says from Adam you got sin and death. And this verse names two more things. What did it say? Judgment and condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, 
Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole book of Romans. Really, really good. Okay, so four things you got from Adam. Who can name them? Sin and death. death. Judgment and condemnation. Yes. That's what you got from Adam. There is no other passage in the Bible about you that says you inherit anything else. If you were in the old covenant and you were of the category of people that hated God, according to Exodus, which we went over last week, you were then, the Bible says God visited the iniquities of the fathers on you, on the children to the third and fourth generation. So you were liable to be punished for previous generations, if you continued hating God as your fathers did. But in regards to our relationship with God, there is nothing that your parents or their parents or their parents did that changes your life today, except what your parents gave you originally from Adam, which is sin, death, judgment, and condemnation. And in Christ... You're not judged or condemned. You are ultimately delivered from death. That's the resurrection of the dead that comes at the second coming. And you're freed from sin. So we got a pretty good deal. Did you have a question, Amaris? No? No? Okay. You must have been stretching or something then. Okay. All right. Yes. Microphone, anybody want to pass down a microphone to her? It also tells us in Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30, in those days people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge so that yep. paying for your parents' iniquities. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Mm-hmm. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on end. Yep, yep. Yeah, this was a problem even back then. This was a, a proverb that the uh, eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was a proverb back then that was used, and people say essentially the same thing today in different words. And that verse is another place in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel, which we went over last week, which says, you die for your own sins, and that's it. And that's why Romans 5 is trying to say death spread to all men because all sinned. It is your sins that ultimately are the reason why you inherit death. And that's it. The seed was planted with Adam, though. Okay, so to sum it up, from Adam you inherit sin and death, judgment and condemnation. Now today, this includes the natural tendency to sin. This is before you receive the Holy Spirit, evidently, and have your mind renewed. You inherit physical decay or sickness and an unrenewed mind. So the reason why, and we'll get into this in more detail, you have a natural tendency to sin, the reason why you're vulnerable to sickness and disease, and have a mind that the Bible says is at enmity against God is because of what started with Adam. That's what you're born with. Then, we're not going to go into this in extreme detail, but if you go into Romans 6, the next chapter, 
it talks about how the sin you inherited from Adam, you are freed from. And I put it this way, in Christ, the pattern of sin is broken. The Bible says that you are granted repentance. It refers to repentance as a gift, several places in the Bible. Two places in Acts, you also have in Timothy, I believe it's 2 Timothy that says to pray that God would grant repentance to people. Repentance is a gift because repentance is the power to turn away, to have your mind changed. A person can't change their mind and turn away from sin unless that power is granted to them by God. It's the Holy Spirit moving upon you that gives you the ability to turn away from sin. And that's why the entrance of the Holy Spirit into your life, for you to be saved, for you to be born again, results in a power given to you specifically which is to turn away from sin, to walk free from sin, no longer a slave under the power of sin. That's what you receive as a result of what Christ did. So I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter of Romans 6 to get more details on that. But to add just a disclaimer, this does not mean you'll never sin again. It simply means that the pattern, or you could say habitual sin, is broken. That you are given the ability to walk, the Bible says, with righteousness reigning in your life, is what the end of Romans 5 says. Death reigned, or sin reigned, before you were saved. Now that you're in Christ, it says, now righteousness reigns, or grace reigns through righteousness, excuse me. And then Romans 6 says, you're now a slave to righteousness. So if you go from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness, that means you go from being controlled and dictated by sin to being controlled and dictated by righteousness. Slave to Christ, right? Now, when you're a slave to something, you're no longer free to act by yourself, for yourself, as though you have absolute control over what you do. Being a slave to something means that that, that independence, so to speak, is taken away. So think about how before people know Jesus, they think they're the free ones, Right? I don't have to be controlled by religion. But the whole time you're a slave to sin. And you can't escape that, right? Now you come to Christ, and now you're a slave to righteousness, which means you're freed from sin. Now that you're freed from sin, what now controls, leads, guides, and directs you is righteousness. And the Bible says it's the same as walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, right? That's why Romans 8 says that those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God or the children of God. So we have to actually understand that you go from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. That's the change that takes place. And that is what is given to you in Christ. So in that sense, the pattern of sin is broken when you come to Jesus. Whereas from Adam, it was a pattern of sin, the natural tendency to be controlled by sin, so on and so forth. It would reign over your life. In Christ, that pattern is broken. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. So I'd encourage you guys to dig into that more. Do we have any just quick questions or comments about that before we move on? Yes. Okay, I have a question. Um, yes. So me as a believer, I, there's no condemnation in Christ, Romans 8.1. Um, so if I choose to sin... I won't be condemned for it. I'll be forgiven. But if my sin, and this is a question that I've wrestled with personally, so I'll just be personal here and not mm -hmm. hypothetical. Um, 
the sinful choices that I have made, I see affect my children. And my children aren't believers. So I know condemnation will not fall on me. But what about them? Will they be condemned as a result of the sin I chose as a believer? Or is that way too complicated to answer here? <laughs> uh, no, it's not too complicated. I'm actually glad you brought that up because we're going to get into that. Um, just to clarify, to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, I won't be able to answer it entirely right now, but I want to make sure I understand your question so that when we get to it later, that it'll be covered. So are you essentially asking that, like if a parent makes choices that affect or let's say offend or embitter their children, and they go on to make choices that maybe were catalyzed by something that you did initially, does that make you responsible for something that they did? Is that your question? Okay. So we'll get into that. Short answer, yes and no. But in Christ, no. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. We're going to get into some biblical examples too. There's, there's Old Testament examples that actually demonstrate this exact thing, that how much influence a parent has on children. So we'll, we'll get into that. Um, okay. Oh, yes, go for it. Um, you mentioned, um, what would you say? That now that you're a slave to righteousness, does this mean that we'll never sin again? No. And I was wondering if you wanted to reference First John 3 or 8, if you want to talk about that. <laughs> sure. Uh, briefly, yeah. Um, it is relevant. Basically, First John 3 is trying to say that Christ was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. In context, is talking about sin. And it says that he who abides in him does not sin. He who sins has neither seen him or known him. And then it goes on to say that he was born of God does not sin. Its point is your practice. That he who is righteous... In other words, made righteous by Christ, born of God, and abiding in Christ does not practice sin. And I have understood if you really boil it down, that he who abides in him does not sin. It essentially means that as long as you are in unbroken communion with Christ, it's impossible to sin. Anytime a person sins, it says it's because he's neither seen or known him. So in other words, you can't be fixed on Christ and knowing Christ and sin at the same time. Sin only happens because the gaze is broken. That's the point, right? Did you have a comment you want to make? Yeah, because mm -hmm. I think, too, it's, it's necessary to keep in mind that what doesn't sin is your spirit. Your spirit cannot sin. Mm -hmm. It can't. Your body can. Your mind can because they're not renewed. Mm -hmm. It's your spirit Cannot sin. Perfect. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. So I wasn't here last week. Did you talk about generational curse? Yes. It, yeah. Uh, does it fall into the question in line with the question that she has? That a generation could be started by this generation, sure. proceeding into the next generation. Is that what you're going to talk about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, I would encourage you, if you go back and listen to last week's, it should be public now. Um, there's going to be kind of the foundation for what we're going to get into today. But I'm going to do some review so you'll get some of the same information. But yes, it will be covered. Okay, so we've covered the sin and death you inherit from Adam, physical decay, sickness, unrenewed mind. In Christ, the pattern of sin is broken. You're granted repentance. In Christ, you have crucified the flesh. And you're also delivered from judgment and condemnation. As Kelly mentioned, there's no condemnation in Christ. That's Romans 8.1. Then, what about the physical death? 
1 Corinthians 15, we won't get into it now. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 especially, it tells us that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In future tense, meaning death, although it has been defeated for the believer, it is not yet destroyed. The difference is that even though, yes, you will physically die, death doesn't hold you because you will be resurrected one day just as Christ was, physically. But this body that you have now does decay and it will perish. If you live until what we might call the rapture, this body is replaced with a new one. So no matter, regardless of whether you physically die or not, this current body that you have will perish. Now, included in death is sickness. Sickness, infirmity, disease, physical malady of any sort is incipient death. That means death in its infancy or at its inception. So when a person gets sick, that sickness has only one intention, which is what? To kill you. Without an immune system, you would die from even a common cold, right? So sickness has one goal, that's to kill you. Now, the Bible says death came through what? Sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So, this is so, so, so important, and a lot of believers miss this. This is really important when it comes to doctrine about healing. As long as we have the ability to sin, or as long as we do sin, we have vulnerability to sickness, to getting sick. Doesn't mean you can't be healed afterwards. That's something different. As long as we have sin, we will be able to get sick. The wages of sin is death. That death is not just spiritual death. Where there is sin, the due recompense for that sin is death, whether it's sickness, disease, which ultimately leads to perishing, or actual death, as in when your heart stops beating. All sin leads to that. As a believer, remember this, you will not be or death will not be destroyed in your life as a believer until the second coming. So, in this, the same way as this is true for unbelievers, your current body now will be vulnerable to getting sick as long as you have sin in your life. Now, every single sickness and disease, no matter how or why or when you get sick, by faith it can be healed. That's a promise in Christ, right? We can heal the sick. Amen. Really cool that we can do that, or that God can do that through us, I should say. Now, what this also means is that, according to Jesus, this is in John chapter 5, he heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. He meets him a second time after he heals him, completely restores his body. And he says, see, you have been made well. And what does he say next? Go and sin no more, lest what? a worse thing come upon you, right? So, Jesus said, or Jesus teaches us what is the preventative measure against sickness? Repentance, right? Faith can heal sicknesses. What keeps sickness away? Repentance. Yep. In other words, 
The more you repent, the healthier you will be. Amen? Now, did you have a question? Yeah. Go for it. Oh, you have to flip the switch on that. Yeah, he's got a different microphone. Push it upwards. Should be. Interesting. We got one. There you go. That one's on. You said uh, that we were saved from uh, sin, death, and judgment, and condemnation. Mm -hmm. And the curses, the generational curses from the first, second, third, fourth generation is the, the forefathers uh, that wanted to do things their own way and hated God. Mm -hmm. And the other ones and their ancestors, uh, after them, if they continue to live that way, they'll be caught up in this thing. Yep. And so the way you just explained that now, from because where, where I come from, uh, I'm prayed for people. They, are, they were uh, Christians. Yep. And they had delivering them from stuff that they had on them, and I'm seeing this coming out of them. Sure. And it was generational. We called it generational curses. Sure. There's no generational curses, from what you explained. Mm -hmm. But that, but what you had already explained from the, uh, the uh, forefathers and the mm -hmm. hatred and stuff, and the generation that come after them will be uh, get the same the same uh, judgment if they don't change from that. Right. And so um, I'm saying that. It's just, I'm trying to think, it's just from, the, they got to renew their minds. Yep. And, um, and, um, and put in the word, uh, speak the word all the time and be in the word and meditate upon the word. And so there is no generational curses from what you're saying. Short answer, correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a little bit more to it that we'll get into, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I would actually, just as a recommendation, I would abstain from using the term generational curses. Uh, number one, because that exact phrase is not used in scripture. The only two reference that we have to curses in the Bible, at least that are in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, is what came from Adam. And then what came from Moses' law. And in Moses' law, it says, the people that hate me, God speaking, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the fourth and third and fourth generation. If you're not a person that hates God, you're not under that curse. Which, those who do not hate God would be those who are saved. Because you wouldn't be saved if you hated God. So if you're in Christ, you are not under that curse. If you're not saved, different story. And that's what we got into a little bit last week, which is that you can and will suffer judgment, this is after death, by God, if you choose to continue in your father's sins. Yeah. Yeah, the last, last Sunday when you were teaching the um, verse in Luke 11, uh, what they approved by their father's actions, yep. from Abel to, who was it again? Zechariah. That's, like you said, that's a lot of time, and mm -hmm. that's a lot of sin built up. <laughs> making their sin a whole lot worse, so having a lot more judgment. Mm -hmm. yep. 
And I just want to bring up Galatians 6, 8, because now that we have the new promise, it's our choice, right? We get to choose to follow Christ or not. So if we, sow, if we choose to sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life of yep. the Spirit. Yep, yep. Now, um, great verse. Uh, Marcy, leave that one on the screen for a little while. Once we go to the next scripture, then I'll have you change it. But leave one up, that one up for a while because we're going to use that. So i got to finish this part about sickness, and then we'll move on to more about clarifying generational curses stuff. Okay, so what I just went over is that as long as we have the ability, to, or as long as we sin, we're vulnerable to sickness. It can be healed through faith, but we're still able to get sick as long as we have sin because the wages of sin is death. Second reason why a person might get sick is that there's sickness in the world. The Bible says in Romans 5, death entered the world and then spread to all men. We live in a fallen world in Romans 8 verses 20 through 23. Don't pull that up on the screen, but you can write down that reference and read it for yourself. Romans 8, 20 through 23 says God in hope subjected this creation to futility, which means this earth is perishing. It's decaying just like your body is. That's why sickness is in the world. So if you get sick or if you have continuing pain that's physical, there's really only two reasons. Either it's attached to one of your sins specifically that has a lingering effect. I'll get into that more. Or, and this is most common, it's just simply a matter of living in a fallen world. There's germs floating around. There's bacteria floating around. It gets in your body. You get a cold. You get flu. Whatever. Those are really the only two reasons, biblically. Now, the, what this gets into in terms of the whole generational curse thing is that some people attach certain sicknesses and diseases to either some deep, deep, deep sin in their past or some deep, deep, deep sin generations before them, and they think they have to repent for previous generations in order to get their sickness healed. Now, according to Scripture... When you come to Christ, all sin is thrown into the depth of the sea. God remembers it no more. And according to the New Testament, and actually the Old Testament included, Ezekiel 18, we'll get into a couple of scriptures to talk about this uh, shortly. It is your sins that you inherit death for. So, this verse that Marcy has up on the screen, Galatians 6, 8. When you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Just like obedience to the Spirit, sin is a seed that you sow that will affect your future. Now, this isn't some weird Buddhist karma thing. Okay? This is just a result of living in a fallen world. When we continue in sin, you're sowing seed to the flesh. Now, as that seed grows and festers, it says it ends up leading to death, which means, yes, it is true. There are certain sicknesses, infirmities, diseases that you can suffer now that were first seeded or the vulnerability to them was, was seeded because of sin in your past. Now, this does not mean they can't be healed because what heals, according to the New Testament, is faith. Faith heals sicknesses and diseases. The preventative measure is repentance. In other words, just to keep it really simple, keep repenting, 
believe God's word for healing, have people pray for you, grow your faith, and you will be the most protected from things like sickness and disease that you can be if you stay in repentance and you keep believing. You do not have to dig into your, your past or your forefathers' past to be healed of something. If that were true, then that would mean you're not a new creation. That would mean your sins haven't been forgotten. And we would all be hopeless if that were true. Jesus preached repent. Yeah. Jesus preached repent. Exactly. Every time. One more comment and then you can uh, make yours. Mm -hmm. Jacob makes a great point here, which is you, when you see Jesus healing, there's only two things. It's so simple. There's two things. And there's kind of a third side one, but two main things that he says when it comes to healing. He would tell a person, your faith has made you well. Sometimes he would heal them on his own faith. And then he would say, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Then the third thing would be when he would cast out demons. There were certain times when to heal a sickness or disease, he would have to cast out a demon or a spirit of infirmity. And then the woman would be healed, which means, but this is specifically for unbelievers. I'm not going to get into this in extreme detail now. Unbelievers can be possessed by demons. And Jesus would sometimes have to cast out those demons to heal the sickness and disease. But as a believer, the only thing that affects us in terms of our vulnerability to getting sick is the fact that we have sinned and then we reap the fruit of that in our bodies or the sin that is, or the sickness that is in this world simply affects us because this world has fallen. And it's really that simple. So again, the solution, stay in repentance, grow your faith, and that will help protect you. Yeah. I think that a generational curse is an easy way to get off from saying it is a sin because most people don't believe in sin the way we see it um, in the world. And so, you know, my dad died of alcoholism at 49. I made a decision to, at that point not to drink alcohol because yep. I read something that says, if you don't drink alcohol, you will never be an alcoholic. <laughs> and it, it, it seems silly, but it's so true yep. that, you know, yep. I think that the quote unquote generational sins that we see following after people are those weaknesses in their belief system and they allow those things to come upon them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's why we see those things going yep. at, you know generation after generation because of their lack of knowledge exactly so you said two things allowance what we allow and then lack of knowledge it's ultimately up to us yeah so we know that because we're believers and we have the holy spirit demons can't possess oh like they can't go in us mm -hmm. but can a spirit of infirmity oppress a believer Put it this way, we have examples of, in Scripture in the New Testament, where doctrines of demons, right, creep into the church, deceive people, mislead people. The only kind of interaction in the record of the New Testament that you see demons having with believers is inspiring false teaching that tries to deceive believers, okay? Now, a spirit of infirmity is a demon, yes. Now, the question of, is it possible for that spirit of infirmity to influence? I would say yes, but because the New Testament only refers to the interaction that demons have with believers in terms of deception, I think that would mean, this is where it gets into your words, if you start to believe, I'm sick because of this, 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 and this, 
and you start talking and thinking sick all the time, and you're not believing the word of God, you're not renewing your mind, I would say because ultimately that is sin itself, of course, you would be making it easier for the devil to influence you in that manner in terms of trying to keep you, keep you sick. But ultimately, it's still the same solution. Get in the nerd, in the nerd, <laughs> get in the word, renew your mind, get in the nerd, get nerdy about the word, get nerdy about the word, yeah, renew your mind, repent, and believe. If you, if you stay consistent in those things, you'll be protected. It's, I believe it's wrong to think that you can be possessed by a spirit of infirmity. We don't have any, if you're an unbeliever, yes. If you're a believer, not going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to be possessed by a spirit of infirmity. Did you have a question? So with an unbeliever, it's different. The healing, when healing an unbeliever by faith, it's different than a believer because like with a believer, like, well, we have like Acts 9, is it Peter saying Tabitha arise and raises her from the dead? It doesn't matter what he said. Like it's not about his words, it's his faith. It's faith. But when it's talking about a demon and an unbeliever, does specifics matter what you say, or is it just faith again? When it's specifically a demon, yeah. you're saying? Like the spirit of infirmity. Like, is that important to say that or just be healed? Jesus. So Jesus actually did both. There's, there's one case where Jesus specifically uh, speaks to the demon. Like this would be the epileptic boy, Matthew 17. He commands the demon to come out. And then it says, and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Then there's another case where it just says, you know, he rebuked the demon and the mute spoke. And then there's other cases where a woman would come to Jesus and say, Lord, my daughter's severely uh, oppressed, you know, uh, tormented, right, by a demon. And then Jesus says, the demon has gone out of your daughter because of your faith, Right? Go in peace. So all this woman did was believe that Jesus could do it. And then Jesus said, hey, it's already happened. The demon's already gone out. And the woman didn't say anything to the demon. It was just her faith. You know? So I would say, just as, and you can see this in Matthew 17, that Jesus says to the disciples when they asked why they couldn't cast out a demon, it was because of your unbelief. Not because you didn't say it right. Right? So ultimately, your faith, whether it's, regarding demons or sicknesses, so on and so forth, is most consequential, most influential, according to Jesus. Because you can say the right thing, but in unbelief, it's not going to do anything. Right? So faith is going to be most important there. Yeah, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, if you know it's a demon, sure. Rebuke the demon. But believe. Yes? So then, quick question, hypothetically speaking, right? If, if you're a believer and you are looking to get healed and say it's been plentiful times that you have been like prayed over, but you can't be healed or like you haven't been healed, would you say that a sin in your life is a cause to that if you're consistently living in that sin? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think, um, two, it tells us in Colossians, I think one that you've been translated out of the darkness mm -hmm. and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. 
and actually is were translated out from underneath the authority of Satan and into God's kingdom. Satan doesn't have any authority over us unless we give it to them, him. Mm-hmm. And many times we do it out of ignorance through our mouths. Mm-hmm. And David, you just talked about that. It's just like somebody's coming to your door with a box for you. You have the option of signing for it and receiving the package or refusing it. And he can't put something on you without you actually agreeing to it. And that's where that renewing our mind comes into play. We have to know this stuff in order to be able to stand against it. Yeah, leaving the door open. Yeah, I agree with that. Only thing I would add is simply that let's make sure that we're not turning the really important doctrine of agreeing with truth and speaking it into this thing that, oh, I'm sick because I failed to say something. Right? That's not what this means. This simply means, hey, just like to Fernando's point here, if you're sick and this, this happens, okay, you'll pray for somebody, the pain leaves, sickness goes, then it comes back later. What's going on? Faith heals, but what did Jesus say causes things to come back? Lack of repentance. So you have to have a, there needs to be faith and repentance in order to ultimately be healthy. Yeah. We might both have something to, to sure. add. But, um, so, brief summary. There was a fall. Mm-hmm. The fallen world. Satan was given dominion over the world. Christ incarnate came, he died, he resurrection. Um, So while we were subject to death and sickness, Christ gave us something to fight back. And that was repentance and abiding in him protects us. But it is not foolproof until his second return and we receive a glorified body. Correct. So... While I don't disagree with what you were saying um, to Fernando, I don't, I mean, the thing that I'm struggling with is um, maybe if somebody is healed and the sickness returns, that is maybe more of an indication that it could be their own sin. But if somebody is sick and they've been prayed over and they never are healed, I'm like, it could be because of their own sin, but it also could just be that, hey, we're subject to death and sickness until he comes again. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm struggling between the absolute. You know, is there an absolute comment there, or is it like gotcha. it's still one or other? Yeah. So clarifying point. It's really two scenarios. So you've got when a sickness is healed, then you've got when it comes back. Those are the two scenarios. According to the model set by Christ and the apostles, actually, there was no sickness, no thing they could imagine that could not be healed by faith. When something came back, Jesus only refers that as being a matter of a lack of repentance. So if somebody's prayed for repeatedly and healing doesn't happen, the only answer Jesus gave biblically for that is unbelief. Only answer he ever gave. When something is healed and comes back, 
it's a repentance thing. But here's the thing. That thing can come back and then be healed by faith again. And then it can come back and then be healed by faith again. And then it can come back. But the thing is, if you want it to stop coming back, repentance is needed. Right. Yeah, it gets worse each time. Yeah. Which also means it doesn't matter how, per- if, even if your faith is perfect, Jesus' faith was perfect. But how many of the people that Jesus healed actually repented? That's a bigger question, which means many of them probably got sick again and worse. Yeah. I think I'm still getting kind of lost in this because, like, I think when, when you say the two scenarios, like, for illness, is that it's somebody's personal sin or it's a result of the fallen world. And so the result of the fallen world, there are times where that won't be healed. Correct? I mean... Well, it's, again, there's nothing Jesus and the apostles couldn't heal with faith. So there was, there's no example where, like, oh, we can't heal that. You know? So it's faith heals. So faith heals, because I do I mm-hmm. believe anything's mm-hmm. possible with God, but it still wouldn't be that the person didn't repent, though, if it wasn't healed. No, like if somebody, if somebody, okay, you pray for them, and they're not getting healed, the answer would not be, oh, it's because you're not repenting. Right. It would be lack of faith. For mainly the, the person praying, if a sickness isn't healed, when a person's being prayed for, it's an it's a issue of faith. If it comes back, and they continually, repeatedly are, in many cases, it's the same thing, then Jesus said that was a matter of repentance, lack of repentance. So the fact that like somebody stays sick, it's a problem with faith. It's not the fact that we live in a fallen world and like this isn't... I don't know... Lazarus had no faith. He was dead, yeah. but he was raised to life. So if it's Jesus a matter faith. of faith, then Lazarus had none. So how does faith come in to healing if Lazarus had no faith and he was raised from the dead? Whose faith healed Lazarus? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. It can. Of course, yeah. You can. You, if you're praying with a person who either has no faith or is dead, but your faith is there, they can be healed. This doesn't mean you blame the person you're praying for, for their lack of faith. The responsibility falls on you as the minister, ultimately. When it comes to faith, when it comes to repentance, that's on all of us. All of us have to repent. The main point that I'm getting at biblically, and you, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No? Okay. Anyways, the main point I was trying to get at biblically is that there is no example in Scripture where Jesus or the apostles could not heal a sickness knowing that we live in a fallen world because faith, there's, there's nothing that's impossible with God. Jesus said that if you believe and do not doubt, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. That's a promise. So that means it's true. There is literally nothing that cannot be healed if faith is there without doubt. Now, growing faith is a process So it doesn't mean it's going to be instantaneous, but that's the promise that Jesus gives. When things keep coming back, it's an issue of a lack of repentance, which is why, in addition to faith, we got to tell people, hey, like, change your habits, right? If you have really, really unhealthy habits, that's probably a lot of the reason why things keep coming back, right? So you got to teach practical life things, including repentance, and teach faith. Balance of both of those. 
Well, I also want to say, like, um, when we're talking about sin, I think one of the most common sin that causes disease is worry. And we don't think of that as sin because it's like, oh, we're just trying to be responsible or whatever. But God continually says that worry is wrong. And frankly, it kills you. Envy is rottenness to the bones is another example. Yep. There's a lot of things that we don't think are like terrible sins, but that have an effect on your body negatively. Yeah. So, but I do think that we have a full responsibility. You know, if we wanted to keep the bad guy out of our house, we wouldn't just lock the back door. We mm-hmm. close the windows, we shut the front door. So I think, you know, putting on the full armor of God and walking in that belief is not just repent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Christ knew the situations of those people, the woman at the well where he said, your faith is healed, you go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew what her problems were. Right, he did, yeah. That's why repentance has got to be specific. Like, you can't just tell a person, repent in general, because they might not know exactly what it is. You know, so that's why teaching is important, because you show people in the word, hey, these things are sin. Cut those things out, you know. That's why repentance is important there. And I also just want to add a, add a clarifying comment that you could have perfect faith, but because we don't yet walk in perfect righteousness, we're still vulnerable to getting sick, okay? For example, Paul, through the power of God, performed incredible healings, incredible healings. Even he said he had a trial in his flesh in Galatians that infers it was something with his eyes. Now, It was not a lack of faith that caused that to happen. Lack of faith is what causes a lack of healing that sickness. But a lack of faith is not an issue of why you got sick. Why we get sick is a matter of the fallen world and sin. That's it. So if you get sick, it doesn't, it's not because there is some specific thing you did wrong. I would say in most cases, it's just the fact that we live in a common world. Well, yeah, if you're willfully in sin too, you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption, right? You sow to the flesh, you stay in sin. Yes, it affects your body. It can cause you to get sick. That's why we get sick. If you are sick, faith heals that sickness. It's kept away through repentance so that things don't keep coming back. Does that make sense? Yes, go for it. David, when I first came to this church, I had a neck pain. Mm-hmm. And you knew that somebody was the church had neck pain, so you prayed for me. And I did not get better. But I was driving one day, and God told me, do you want to get better? And when I thought about it, I thought, no, I don't want to get better because they pay attention to me when I'm sick. So once he revealed that to me, I could change that whole thing, and now my neck feels much better. So it was all up to me to figure out why I wasn't getting healed. Mindset change? That would be a repentance. Okay, now I'm going to clarify. This doesn't mean that... Faith couldn't work until you fix something. Because Jesus, his faith worked all the time, no matter how the person was thinking. But what repentance does is puts you in the position, if it's a matter for yourself, helps you to believe for yourself. Okay? If someone else is believing for you, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, you can be healed. Okay? So if when I pray for you, you didn't get better, that's, a, that's on me. That's a lack of faith on my part. Okay? Excuse me? If I am praying for a believer or an unbeliever, it's the same. 
if I'm the one praying, as in if I believe my faith is there, an unbeliever or a believer are healed the same way. That's what's stated in scripture. Didn't I need to learn more about healing for myself and my faith? To grow your faith, yes. To grow my faith to be healed also. I mean, you, you can, you can, okay, I'll put it this way. You don't have to have always somebody pray for you to, for you to be healed. People were healed on their own faith in Jesus ministry as well, right? So the growth of your own faith, yes, contributes to your own healing, just as growing in my faith can also contribute to your healing. But it's not that people think of it this way, that like, it's not about faith. It's all these other issues that I have to deal with. And they think that they can't have faith until they deal with those things. That's not the point. Faith heals. But the distinction we're making is that faith heals. Repentance contributes to keeping sickness away. Does that make sense? Okay. Any more questions or comments about this? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's, it seems really simple to talk about, but then isn't it really showing like we are a mess of a doubt of, of faith? Because yes. we all have people that we know have cancer and have tons of illnesses even on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. so we're really saying it's like that's it's all our faith. Faith and sin. Yeah. Sin is the cause, but the fact that they're not healed. Is a matter of faith. Lack of faith. Yep. Yep. Most people do not have great faith, myself included, but I know I'm growing and I know that I'm seeing more people healed now than I did in the past. So to to me, it's a matter of commitment to the growth of faith. And I think that's the change that I need to make in my, instead Mm -hmm. of it be condemning, Mm -hmm. instead of it being discouraging, it's to be more encouraging to grow in faith. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think I kind of get stuck in the blaming myself or sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's like the I suck comment. It's like, yes, but that's okay if you let it teach you to grow. Like failure is the best teacher, right? It's okay to fail. It's going to happen. The issue is what, do you let it motivate you to grow? That's the key. And that's what will keep you from being condemned about it. Yes. Yeah. Still love others. Yeah. Don't, don't turn into a condemnation thing like you're going to be a failure your whole life. Right? That's not the point. The apostles grew. The apostles started as tax collectors, fishermen, sinners. And they learned and they grew to the point where they were healing myriads of people. But they had to grow just like we do. Yeah. David, there's somebody in my life who is always sick, complains about this pain, that pain, everything else. And I was just sitting here thinking, I need to be praying for that person. But when I pray for that person, lay hands on that person, do I do it in private with that person there? Or do I just come out and say, you know what? I'm going to start praying for your physical healing. What I would do in that situation, if I were in your shoes, is I would, on some sort of a consistent basis, whenever I'm convicted, to go and pray for them in person. But continually in private, I would pray for them on my own. Just keep them in my prayers. Because praying for people, praying, period, builds you up on your most holy faith. Prayer builds your faith. So if you forfeit prayer, you're forfeiting the growth of your faith. Right? Yeah. So I have an instance where there's a person that I pray for. Sure. 
Um, and I can see that their identity is wrapped up in their sickness. And so that has to do with their repentance then. Correct? Yep. Okay. yep. But here's the thing. Like, with, if the faith was there, okay, this isn't, this isn't blaming you because all, we all lack faith, right? So in Jillian's case, she prays for, let's say your faith is great, great enough that all of her infirmities go, okay, instantly. All gone, 100%. Now, a week later, the excitement wears off of her being healed. And she's thinking the same way. She's not repenting. That same stuff can come back. And is that Jolene's fault? No. Repentance is needed, right? So if you want to protect, heal a person long term, you need both faith and repentance. What if she doesn't Correct. That's a faith issue. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how quickly things can come back. If there's no repentance, especially for unbelievers. Right. And especially. If, if they've been sick for so long, they just kind of live in that. Mm -hmm. And they just keep yeah. thinking this is how it's going to be right. for the rest of my life. Right. Yep. So one thing you can do to instill hope in a person, while your faith is growing, disciple people, teach people, teach them repentance, encourage them to repent. Because what you're doing in that case is you're creating the fortitude they need in their heart and mind. To be able to eventually, as faith grows, see them healed and staying healed. So if you can't, if, it's, if there's an issue of faith, anybody can teach repentance. Which, of course, in, you know, you should be walking in repentance too, if you're going to be teaching somebody that. But there's always something you can do to help a person in addition to just simply praying for them on your own because that grows your faith. Because who knows, maybe they'll just be out and about and you're praying, praying for them and they meet a random stranger who has great faith and they pray for them, they get healed. But you teaching them repentance is helping them at the same time because you're contributing to them staying healed. But it might be somebody else's faith that causes the healing to happen. So if you can't do anything, pray for them and help them with repentance, disciple them, teach them the word of God. That's what you can do. Repentance meaning to change your mind and turn away from. So decide, I don't want to live this way anymore. Then take actions to not live that way anymore. And what helps you take those actions is the word, renewing your mind. Give, give you an example. Let's say a person's issue is, let's take something that's a little bit more, I feel like a little bit more common. Like let's say it's, it's anger. You're angry at either a person or at life, whatever. That's sin. Okay? You're angry. Repentance begins with, I don't want to be angry anymore. This is hurting me. It's hurting others. It's grieving me. I'm convicted about it. Okay? That's, your mind has changed. That's repentance. Now, what do I need to do and what do I need to learn to help me not be angry? First step you can take is to learn. So look into the word. See examples of people that were angry, what negativity it caused them to help motivate you to not continue in it. Then look at cases where a person was righteously angry and what made it righteous for them and unrighteous for another person. And you can see this with God. The Bible says God is always angry. He's angry with the wicked every day, Psalm says, right? So God's angry a lot, but it's righteous, right? So you look at Good and bad examples of anger, that's the renewal of your mind issue. 
learn about it, then put into practice some of the things in action that you're learning about, and then pray for yourself in that area. So an example would be whenever your prayer time is or throughout the day, Father, help me to repent from anger. Help me to repent from anger. Help me to be at peace, so on and so forth. You pray for yourself. Then do something that you would never do. That would be a discipline of not being angry. For example, a person that angers you a lot, write them a really, really nice card with money in it. Yep. There you go. Make them some cookies. Do something really, really nice for them. Bless them. Pray for them. Right? Take an action that a not angry person would take. (laughs) Do that while you pray for them and pray for yourself. And you keep doing that and you'll renew your mind and you won't be angry anymore. Amen? That would be an example. Okay, we have to move on. You can make this, this comment and then we'll have to move well, on. Well, I was just going to say that healing isn't always instantaneous. So for the person praying, if it doesn't happen right that moment, with the condemnation and, oh, I, don't, I didn't have enough faith, I think we have to be careful with that too, correct? I mean, because it's not necessarily going to be always something we would see right in that moment. <clears throat> Yes and no. Biblical examples. Elijah had to pray seven times for rain to come. Jesus, the maximum number of times he prayed for somebody for them to be healed was twice. Doesn't say why, but for whatever reason, this particular individual took two prayers. For everyone else, or every other case with Jesus, it was instantaneous. And those are the, the only two examples, at least the one example of Jesus in the New Testament is the only one that I know of where you see a process of healing, which to me seems to say that if something we pray for isn't done instantaneously or at least soon, it is still an issue of faith, unless it's a matter of a specific timing that you have to be discerning for that moment. So for example, Jesus had to know when it was the right time to go to Lazarus. Jesus had to know to pull this individual out of the city and pray for him away from everyone else. Jesus had to know when I can go into Jerusalem and when I can't. So sometimes faith is a matter of obedience to the specific instructions of the Holy Spirit for individuals places, people, so on and so forth. So, for example, if you're praying for somebody and the healing is not happening, but you're in disobedience to something the Holy Spirit has to say specifically about that situation, that disobedience is, in fact, a lack of faith. Because faith always obeys and, and acts on what God is saying without needing to reason through it. So, I would just consider, biblically, it's either a matter of just simply a lack of faith or it's a matter of lack of obedience to a specific instruction that's needed for that situation or person. And sometimes it can be what you do, what you say, if that's what the Holy Spirit's saying. So you've got Jesus, how did he decide to spit in the ground to make clay and spread it on the guy's eyes? Why did that work? It wasn't the clay. It was the faith he was exercising in obedience to that instruction or that detail. Does that make sense? That would be my answer to that. 
One, one more. Right? Okay. Because I, yep. I don't want to drag it out. But <clears throat> when we pray for people, I think we have, to, we have to understand what it means to pray. It doesn't mean, oh, God, heal so-and-so. He told us to heal them. And a lot of times our yeah. prayer is asking God to do it. He says, no, you do it. Mm-hmm. So we need to be clear about that when we talk about I prayed for someone and they didn't get healed. Yeah, think about how you're praying. Yeah. The very fact that Jesus said, you go heal the sick, actually reminds us that it is a matter of our faith. Because if it's in our faith, then it's actually in the power that God has given us through that faith, which puts the responsibility on us. So you do have to think about how you pray. Right, because the Spirit lives in us, right? He's at our disposal. He's our advocate. Okay, we've got to move on. We're almost done here. These will be short points just to clarify. Let's go to Ezekiel 18. Just going to read a couple verses out of this. The reason why I brought up this topic of sickness is because it's a very common thing that people deal with that do have to do with the results or wages of sin, whether in their life or in the world. So it's important we cover that. So let's go to Ezekiel 18. We're going to start in verse 14. Jacob went over some of this. If, however, he begets a son, this is an evil person, wicked person, begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers, but does not do likewise. Go to verse 18. Um, or excuse me, the end of 17. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Now, death includes what? Sickness. Death came through sin, but sickness is a form of death, right? So you will not get sick for the iniquity of your father. Why? Because you see the sins which your father did and consider and do not do likewise. Keyword there is consider, right? You look at all the destructive effects and go, man, I don't want to do that. In fact, I won't do that. <laughs> Therefore, you will not die for the iniquity of your father. And death includes what? Sickness. So the wages of whose sin produces death in your life? Your own. So repent. Then read same chapter, verse... 18, as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And go to verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Simple. It falls on you. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does, does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll pause there. This is really good to remember that if, if you're sick from something that you did, in your past before you knew Christ. So let's say it was uh, alcoholism and your liver's shot. Then you get saved. Your liver's still shot. The very fact that you will not die for sin that God has forgotten actually is part of what inspires faith to be healed of that. 
because you go, wow, that sin's forgiven. That's been washed away. So why would I still suffer death for what God has washed away? So that means that puts two things for us to do. Repent of alcoholism, right? Number one. Number two, let this truth of what it's saying that you shall not die inspire faith so that you believe that, hey, God has provided healing for this in Christ, and I can believe that, and I'm a new creation. So that's just another thing that is important to see in there. Yeah. If you happen to die because of that, your physical body dies, you still live because you're a new creation in Christ and you have ultimately. eternal life. Yeah, ultimately. Yeah. Is there another reference to that? Like all believers will receive healing and it's talking about spiritual healing in most cases, some cases? Well, I mean, every verse that talks about being given a new body is, yeah, healing. Okay, you're stretching. I thought you put your hand up. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, so a couple of verses that are similar. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. I'm just going to quote... Uh, this one, we can put it on the screen. That'd be great. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. This is Old Testament from the very beginning. Cain, first murderer. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Next verse. He's angry at Abel. Oop. Wrong chapter. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yep. Why is your countenance fallen? Next verse. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Even back then, people had a choice not to sin. The issue is that it was a lot harder to make the right choice because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. For you, it's a whole lot easier. You have a massive advantage as a believer. They could still use their own decision-making power. Yep. Exactly. Yep. God was trying to tell Cain that, hey, you got a choice here. Sin's desire is for you, but you can rule over it. You should. And you'll be accepted if you repent. <laughs> that was funny. Good one. He wanted to wallow in it. Yep. Yep. So that's one example. Last one, Proverbs 5, 22 through 23. This is one of my favorites. That says, his own iniquities ensnare the wicked man. He is caught in the cords of his own sin. Next verse. He shall die for his lack of instruction and the greatness of his folly. He shall go astray. Your own iniquities ensnare you. Not the iniquities of your dad, your grandpa, your great grandpa. Your lack of instruction to uh, Kevin's point your lack of knowledge, and your choice for folly. So, this gets into, Kelly, your original question, okay? This is what we'll finish with. As a parent, whether you are saved or not, you make choices that are bad choices, your kids see that. We'll start with the unbeliever's case. Scripture is very clear that as a parent, if you raise your child in the way which he should go, when he is old, he won't depart from it. God commanded the Israelites, starting with Abraham, you're raised up so you will teach your children to keep my commandments. The 
choice for righteousness of a child, the Bible says it's actually directly tied to how a parent raises them. In other words, you will make it massively easier for your children to choose righteousness if you exemplify it to them. They still have their own choice, their own free will, but you're going to make them want righteousness a whole lot more if you live it before their eyes. Okay? Now, if that unbeliever raises their children in a way that incites them or at least influences them towards sin and unrighteousness, and that child goes astray, that parent, according to God's word, is held accountable for their own sin. And of course, you have how that sin influenced their children because Jesus said, if you cause a little one to stumble, it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be cast into the sea. So it's a very serious thing for God to influence children to go astray, right? So that is a sin that's on our part that the unbeliever is accountable for. But if you get saved, what happens to your sin? It's forgotten, which means you are no longer, it's no longer held against you what how you negatively influence your children. Now, they the whole time still had their own choice, okay? So they can still choose for or against righteousness, and that is, you're not responsible for that. They are, which is why the best thing you can do for a parent that didn't know better before they were saved is to get them saved, get them clear of that guilt so they're not staying in that grief and turmoil, right? That's what you can do for the parent. For the children, same thing you do for anyone else. Lead them to repentance. Preach the gospel to them. So on and so forth. Now, the second question attached to this is if, the, if you have a parent that, you know, they don't know Jesus and they really do not raise their kids well, does that mean their children have a greater disadvantage because of being raised that way? Short answer, No. Because everyone has the same choice for life or death. Biblical example we can use is in the Old Testament, you see this in the lineage of the kings, especially second kings. I'll just give you a really quick example. You've got a really good king, Hezekiah, one of the best kings Israel ever had. Great guy. Okay. He has a kid named Manasseh. Now, you would think Manasseh would also be a great guy. Really not. <laughs> he was one of the worst kings Israel ever had. He was one of the first kings to start telling Israel that they had to sacrifice their babies to Baal. It said he filled Judah with innocent blood. More than any Israelite king was before him. And his dad was great. Then Manasseh has a son named Ammon. Ammon continues in the same sins as his father. Same stuff, filling the land with innocent blood, sacrificing babies, that whole thing. Then Ammon has a son named Josiah. And if you know anything about Josiah, great king. Really, really great guy. He, it says, turned to the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul more than all the kings who were before him. Nobody turned to God like Josiah did. And Josiah's dad and granddad were the worst of Israel's kings. And you see this in the lineage of the kings. There's these common denominators. One, when you have a good king, it's most common 
that that king's children are also good. If you have a really bad king, it's most common that their kids are also pretty bad. But every once in a while, you see this example where somebody like Josiah turns away from all that sin, has a new start, and is the best the kings of Israel ever saw. Which tells you one thing, really. The whole time, back then, and the whole time now, we all have the same choice for life or death. And you can obey on a level that impresses so much that they write about it in the Bible. And it didn't matter how bad your dad or granddad was. But because of fallen nature, it is most common for children to continue in their father's sins simply because it's easier. Because the flesh is so seductive. But everyone has the same choice. Even the best of the kings in Israel came from the worst of kings. Which means you don't have to believe that your obedience is going to be limited because of what your parents did. That, believing that, is a cop-out. It's an excuse based in ignorance. There is no excuse, according to the Bible. Especially since that record of the kings is in the Old Testament, it makes it all the more true in the New, because we have the Holy Spirit as a believer, that we have the ability to turn away from sin in a level that nobody could in the Old Testament. So there is no excuse. You are responsible only for your own sins, not the sins of your father's. Don't pass blame. That started with Adam and Eve. People have been doing it ever since. Where are you, Adam? Well, I'm hiding. I was ashamed. What'd you do? Well, uh, the woman you gave me. She did it. All right, let's talk to the woman. Eve, what'd you do? The serpent. The devil made me do it. Okay, Satan, <laughs> I'm going to curse you. You're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of your existence, speaking to the serpent, type in shadow there, I won't get into. Then he goes, Eve, here's what you will have to suffer. Adam, here's what you have to suffer. In other words, everyone had to be held accountable for what they did, no matter who influenced them. In other words, even being deceived is not an excuse because the only way you're deceived is ignorance. And whose fault is ignorance? Yours. Your own. Exactly. So you can't blame anybody. Adam and Eve did it. We do it. Cut it out. Did you have a comment? Yeah, because you were talking about the example in um, the Old Testament, but in Romans 11, verse 32, 34, 32 anyway, Amplified. For God has consigned or pinned up all men to obedience, only that he may have mercy on all alike. And that's just something, you know, there's no excuse. We are all subject to doing stupid stuff and sin. Mm -hmm. But all of us has a choice. Mm -hmm. And he can have mercy on all of us alike. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes, he can. Yep. Did anyone else have a comment? I feel like so. Yeah, I, I knew it was you. <laughs> what was the um, What was the verse in Malachi two of God wants godly offspring? Malachi two, yeah, it's like it's like. Uh, yeah, it's it starts in um, around verse eleven or twelve. 
really good passage. Glad you brought that up. He talks about marriage and says, verse 14, Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. He's talking about adultery. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? He's talking about there's a special endowment of the Holy Spirit that's given to a married couple for their marriage. Then he says, and why did he make them one? Why does he make two one flesh? He seeks godly offspring. So, you know, it really, really helps your kids having a great marriage. That's what this is trying to say. So, that's a, God, you brought that up. Practical thing. Have a great marriage. That really helps your kids out. But don't blame yourself because you're only held accountable for your own sins. So get saved so you can be forgiven. <laughs> That'll help you out. And then what'll help your kids out is preaching the gospel to them so they can get saved too. So they can have their sins washed away. But nobody is responsible for what you are suffering now because of your sin, except your own sin. Except you. The best thing you can do is learn the word, renew your mind, and repent. And last comment, if you take, like Jesus said, Luke 9, 62, he says, any man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. The plow is talking about the work of the kingdom. You're trying to live for God, serve him. And whenever you try to walk or do anything in a straight line and you have your head like this, what happens? <laughs> right. Try driving doing that. You'll crash. It'll be really bad, right? Exactly. Yeah, they drift. Yeah. That's a perfect example of where the head goes, the body will follow. Right. So if you're ahead of the wife, guess what? And if she's the head of the children, guess what? Mm -hmm. All going mm -hmm. the same way. So mm -hmm. don't look back. Yep. Yeah, especially as a husband, keep that in mind. But bringing up that verse, my point with that is that if you're trying to live for God's kingdom and you're looking in your past, it's going to happen. You're going to go back there. You, if you glorify sin, you talk about sin, you talk about death, you talk about what your ancestors did, you dwell on that, you meditate on that, none of that's the word of God. You're dwelling on works of the devil. You do that, you're going to continue in it. In fact, that's why the Bible says the law actually strengthens sin. Because when you dwell on the condemnation of the law, the Bible says it administers death to you. So if you dwell on all the curses of the law, and that's what you think about, guess what's going to be in your life? All of that, right? So the idea that we have to dig into our past and look at that to try to figure it all out before we can live for the kingdom is a complete lie. You have to be focused on new life in Christ. You have to set your mind on that, on the word of God, and realize no one's going to answer for your sins except you, and no one's going to answer for your ancestors' sins except them. Period. That's it. So repent, believe the word of God, and don't get all tangled up in these strange doctrines like the Bible calls it. Otherwise, the Bible says you're like a child that is not mature in understanding and is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that's what we want to avoid. Amen?